today. It's kind of scary when I think, but sometimes I do think, you know. I was thinking about um, the 2016 election and um, the ramifications of what we are seeing today from it. And all of us remember that the, and again, this goes to the glory of God, to his sovereignty in all, in all matters. Because you remember that the political parties were against the man that God had ordained to be there. The press was against him. I mean, think of this, brother, for a moment. All of it. They were all against him. And the Lord is sovereign. He placed his Cyrus, and I, and I don't believe, I, I, I can't judge Trump's heart, but he, he used Cyrus like he did. You know, Cyrus is one of the only, the only Gentile in the Bible that's ever called anointed. And God used him and put him in place, put him there. And uh, he did the same thing. Think of the history, how it would be different today, brethren, as we're encouraged by seeing, and again, the, some of the, the reprieve, the victories, if you will, in some of the things that God is doing, even in our, own, in our own nation. And it's so relevant because tonight in our text, there is another parenthesis, there's another stoppage in the judgment of God. We have seen what's been taking place, a third of mankind, he's, he's, he's realming and, and dealing out all of these judgments, and right in the middle of this judgment now, between the sixth and seventh judgment that's to come, he puts another parenthesis around our text and stops the judgment to, if I could say, to encourage the elect who are living during that era, during that time, watching and seeing what the wicked are doing and how God is dealing with them. And yet they're encouraged in some of the things that God is doing here in our text this evening. And so, again, we see the sovereignty of God. We see the relevancy of Scripture. And we can continue to see God's faithfulness, his mercy to his elect, even in his times of judgment. It is a quite an encouraging thing, brethren, as we read together. We've already reached chapter 10, believe it or not, in the book of Revelation. Everybody go, oh, already? Yeah, we're, we're here this evening, so turn with me, if, there, if you would, to Revelation chapter 10, and uh, we will begin this glorious parenthesis, this interlude in between the sixth and seventh, as God opens up, then the seventh, then those seventh uh, judgments that come from that one. It, it's, a, it's an amazing thing how God has put this book of Revelation, how he's going to do it, and uh, the encouragement he's going to give to those to whom he has elected unto salvation. Look at verse number 1, uh, Revelation chapter 10. Look at verse number 1. The Bible says, And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. We notice five characteristics there of this, of this mighty angel. We're going to look at that this evening. And uh, kind of dissect verses 1 and 2, and then we'll be finished this evening, Lord willing. Verse number 2, and he had in his hand a little book open. And that's, a, that's an interesting portion of scripture that uh, John brings to our attention. That this book that he has is open in his hand, so there's no opening that needs to take place. And he set his right foot upon the sea, and his left foot upon the earth. And then verse number 3, we'll just read that together. And cried with a loud voice, as when a, lord, a lion roareth. And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. Chapter 10, as I said, begins another, uh, if you will, gracious parentheses that God uh, puts together here in the book of Revelation. This is indeed the interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpet judgment, which parallels the interlude between the sixth and seventh seal bowl judgments. We remember that. We saw that back in Revelation chapter 6. He brought judgment. There was a time of, of, uh, of peace there. His elect were being saved. 
And then the judgments that we're in now started again. And so here it is again, the second parenthetical passage in, a, in the book of Revelation, the second of three, because there's another one that takes place. And here we are this evening finding there. Chapter 7 introduced us to, again, the parentheses between the six and seven seals. So in chapter 10 through chapter 11, verse 14, the Spirit of God introduces an interlude designed to console, if you will, his elect by announcing the millennial reign of Christ. Amen. I mean, ultimately, in the end, this is where the believer, amen, this is the, uh, if you will, the hope that the believer has. As we look around amongst the evil and living amongst the evil, that, that constant reminder, brother, as we remind ourselves each Lord's Day, amen, we partake of the Lord's table, we gather together, what, till he comes again. And so that ultimately is what God is doing here in our text. He's putting in parentheses, he's giving us an interlude, the brethren who are there, the elect who are yet to be saved during the tribulation, he's looking and saying to them, just like I've been thinking in my little brain again as I drive, thinking about God's judgment happening here, and yet there's these glorious victories that it appears that God is bringing in the midst of that judgment. Even, brother, consider this for a moment. The COVID-19, uh, what should we call it? Uh, fraud. I guess we could call it that. Amen. That's Because that's what it was, basically. Um, think of this for a moment. All of the schools closed. And uh, when they reopened, during that time period, some parents, many of them, realized what their children were being taught. <laughs> it's an amazing thing. You know, by droves, they're not sending them back. They're keeping them at home. They're training their children. So think of that, brethren, for just a moment. A fraud that was perpetrated by evil men, God used to expose. And it's a stunning thing to behold. I, I get goosebumps because, again, we see the faithfulness of God in that. Men meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Amen. And so, again, we, we see in our own day the application of God and his goodness towards his elect and towards the things that are really taking place. But really what, what God is doing here, he is introducing this interlude. He uses it to uh, introduce the millennial reign of Christ. Look at chapter 11. Look at verse number 15. So thinking now, chapter 10, all the way through 11, verse 14, there's this interlude. And, and when we get to verse 15 of chapter 11, look there what the Bible says. Chapter 11, verse number 15. And the Bible says, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of who? The kingdoms of our Lord and his, of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And so, again, after the interlude, after the parentheses, this is exactly what's being said. This thing that's taking place in chapter 10 through chapter 11, verse 14, are all pointing towards the encouragement of the brethren, amen, as these things take place. Also, in this parentheses, this interlude, if you will, that we're going to be delving into, there are two sets of forerunners of our Lord Jesus Christ's second coming. There's the mighty angel we're going to look at tonight, and then there are the witnesses in chapter 11. It's quite an amazing thing. These two sets of forerunners, angelic and human, amen, so we've got an angelic testimony, and then we also have some human testimony that we're going to be seeing here in chapter 11. These two sets of forerunners, amen, are God's ordained heralds. These who he has chose to, if you will, herald Christ's millennial kingdom. The king, as you know, is always, amen, heralded. He's always, uh, if you will, preceded by his heralds. In other words, when the king is coming, his heralds are going ahead of him, amen, and announcing that the king and his kingdom is coming. And again, this is consistent with scripture. This is exactly 
what we saw at his first coming. And I want you to see this, brother. Again, a very familiar portion of Scripture, and yet a very familiar pattern in Scripture. The king is always preceded by someone who says the king and his kingdom are coming. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 3 for just a moment, if you would. Again, Christ's first coming, and there's so many glorious parallels between his first coming, if you will, and how God did things to his second coming as well. And uh, here we see his kingship and his kingdom are being heralded. Being heralded by, if you will, John the Baptist. He's the voice. He's the heralder. He's the one that's telling everyone, the kingdom of God is at hand. Christ is coming. Amen? This is what we see in chapter 10 of Revelation. There's a mighty angel that's going to declare the king is coming. Amen? His millennial kingdom is on its way. The witnesses do the same thing. Here in Matthew chapter 3, look there. If you would look at verse number 1. Look what the Bible says there. Matthew chapter 3, look at verse number 1. In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Again, here he is, the heralder is proclaiming that the kingdom is at hand. Amen. It's near and nigh. Look what it says. For this is he that is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice. That's John the Baptist. He's the heralder. He's the one that's out in front, if you will. He's the Elijah that was to come. He's the heralder and saying, the king is coming, and his kingdom is coming as well. And this is what the mighty angel is going to do here in John in uh, Revelation chapter 10. That's what the witnesses are going to do. They're going to tell us the king is coming along with his kingdom. And, of course, that is his second advent, the millennial kingdom. Look at what it says of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. This, again, is what's taking place in the book of Revelation. Again, isn't it a glorious thing when you think about this, brother? How God has set a pattern in place. And God continues to use that pattern. He continues to, if you will, herald to those who are upon the earth that this king is coming again. This kingdom is soon to be at hand. Look back there at Revelation chapter 10. Let's take a look at the mighty angel here tonight for just a moment. There are some interesting characteristics that John gives us here in the book of Revelation. Now, you'll notice here as we go down these characteristics or as John describes his his dwelling place he describes his glorious apparel he describes uh, his face and what his body looks like you'll notice some very clear similarities to the Lord Jesus Christ the Lord Jesus Christ is coming from heaven amen and we know that is there's a connection here obviously many men believe this is Jesus himself I do not I believe it is a mighty angel a heralder that God is sending to tell that the king is coming. Amen. And so look at verse number one there. The Bible says, And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was as it were the sun, and his feet were as pillars of fire. Again, a glorious description of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are certainly some similitudes there. There are some similarities in that for sure. But John here sees this mighty angel who we, as we notice, has five distinct characteristics. First of all, his dwelling place. And I want us to just look at that for just a moment. John says here, as he's led by the Spirit of God, that this angel, this mighty angel, came down from where? He came down from heaven. This is his dwelling place. This is where he is at. This is where the angels of God reside. Amen. In heaven, if you will. It's an amazing thing. In fact, we see this a lot in the book of Revelation, that God sends his messenger from heaven. Amen. This is what we see. 
Look here, if you will, when a herolder in, in uh, if you will, Revelation chapter 18, look what God sends this angel to do. Amen. Again, he is a herolder. He is one who is speaking for God. He's telling them what's going to happen. Look at Revelation chapter 18 real quickly there. Again, this pattern that we see as John is describing it here in chapter 10. Look at verse number 1. Notice again the angel's dwelling place. And notice again that he's heralding, he's voicing what God is wanting him to say unto those who are upon the earth. This, of course, is God's holy view of Babylon. That's what this is. That's what chapter 18 is about. Look at there. And after these things, I saw another angel come down from where? From heaven, having great power. There it is again. And the earth was lighted with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong what voice. Again, he's the heralder. He's, an arrow. he's sent from heaven by God himself under God's authority to speak what God is telling him to speak to those who he is going to speak it to. Look at what he said. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. It has become the habitation of devils and, and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. So again, this is what the heralder of God is doing. God's sending his angel who dwells in heaven. You go down and you herald and you tell them exactly what God thinks of Babylon. And this is exactly what we see. Look at another one here again in Revelation chapter 20, just over there, just uh, a couple of, of uh, chapters. Look there at verse number 1, Revelation chapter 20, verse number 1. And we all know it's Wednesday evening. Chapter 20 is about what? It's about the millennial reign of Christ. This is what it is. And we again see this angel who is sent by God to loose and to chain and to do those things, those powerful things. Look at verse number 1. And I saw an angel come down from heaven. There it is again, brethren. Amen. Now, we remember before that the, the people have tried to connect this angel to Jesus, and yet it's the angel of the same type. And so Jesus is above the angel's brother. He is higher and mightier and more glorious and more greater. And so, no, these are simply angels, heralders, that God is sending. Look there as we finish that up. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should not deceive the nations no more till a thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loose for a little season. So again, this is the message. This is the heralder. This is the angel from heaven who came down to tell of the sealing, the chaining, if you will, of Satan himself. It's an amazing thing when you think about that. So John, after he introduces this mighty angel, he goes on in verse number one of chapter 10 to describe his spectacular attire. And so I want us for just a moment to spend a few moments looking at it concerning this glorious attire that this mighty angel is guarded in. Look there at chapter 10, look at verse number one again. He comes down from heaven, his dwelling place. And the Bible says, first of all, that he's clothed with a what? With a cloud. With a cloud. That's an interesting thing, amen? It's an in interesting thing when you consider these things. This cloud, if you will, as one pastor said, this angel is wearing the drapery of heaven. I like that, amen? The drapery of heaven. Here he is described by John as, as uh, wearing this cloud. But one of the things we notice in Holy Scripture throughout Scripture, actually, but more so uh, when it comes to the second coming of Christ. Again, this is what the angel's going to herald. The king's coming, his millennial kingdom is coming, and as he's coming, 
brethren, there's going to be judgment. This, these clouds are, in this particular portion of Scripture, are connected again with his judgment. Because that's what's coming. That's part of what the angel's going to preach, amen, after he gets past this particular portion of Scripture. Look here, if you will, the association, if you will, in the second coming of Christ and his judgment. Him coming in judgment. Again now, for the believer, for the Christian, for the elect of God, amen. Jesus is coming not a second time What to deal with what? To deal with sin, but to take up and gather his elect. That's what he's going to do. Sin's been dealt with. Sin's been his, uh, your sin if you're saved this evening. And those all through the church age, if you're saved, that punishment's already been dealt with. But not with these. It's interesting how it's reversed. The Lord Jesus took the wrath of God, the winepress of God, upon himself for his people. And now in reverse, when he comes, he is going to deal out that wrath and that winepress upon those who have rejected Christ. It is a most stunning thing. Look there, if you would, just an association for, with me for a couple of portions of Scripture. The clouds and the coming judgment as Christ comes in judgment. Look at Matthew 24. Again, a very glorious portion of Scripture. Again, the cloud. He's draped, or he's clothed in the drapery of heaven, if you will. In Matthew chapter 24, again, this connection, this association of the second coming of Christ in judgment. We see it over and over and over again. And again, this is what's coming. This is what's about to be unleashed. There's a parenthesis. Remember, it's stopped. And so he's going to be telling them this is what's coming when chapter 11, verse 15 kicks off. The Lord Jesus Christ himself. Look there at Matthew 24. Again, a very familiar portion of scripture to all of us. But clouds, association with, in association with the coming judgment as Christ returns. Look at verse number 29. Matthew chapter 24, look at verse number 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days uh, shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. And there shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth, what? Rejoice, be glad. No, you know what they're doing? They're mourning. Because of when he comes, his second time, when he comes with the clouds of the sky, it is associated with his him coming in judgment. Look what it says there. And they shall see the Son of Man. Look, at the Son of Man in heaven. And they shall, all the tribes of the earth shall mourn. And they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Again, when Jesus comes, those who have rejected him, those who have been shaking their fists at him, those who have continually rebelled against him, the last thing they're going to be doing is rejoicing. And this is what the angel is saying. Judgment is coming. And it's associated with his, with his angels who's shrouded and dressed in the draper of heaven, in the clouds of heaven. Remember Revelation chapter 1? Look at verse number 7. Again, this is something that is just constantly throughout scriptures. Again, this cloud being associated, well, with the presence of God, obviously, but also with the judgment in his second coming. Look at what John wrote in Revelation chapter 1. It, that was a long time ago. I said we're already in chapter 10. That was a long time ago, brethren. And uh, if you're like me, sometimes I forget things, and it happens more often than not anymore. Look at Revelation chapter 1 again, this association of clouds and judgment. Verse 7, Behold, he cometh with the clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. And all the kindreds of the earth shall what? Rejoice? They shall wail, because his judgment, when he comes the second time, again, it has nothing to do with that was sin and dealing with sin apart from Israel and those elect who will be saved, but it is his judgment that's going to be coming. And all the kings will wail because of him, even so. Amen. In 
fact, in Revelation chapter 14, just flip over there real quick again, the idea here of this judgment. Now, it's interesting here, the order in which John gives us the cloud, because the second thing he gives us is the rainbow. And that, brother, this is not done by accident. This is, this is not happenstance. John is given the order in perfect orders. God had led him to do that. Look at Revelation 14, again, concerning Christ's coming and judgment. Look at verse number 14. Revelation 14, look at verse number 14. This, of course, is the vision of Armageddon. Verse 14, the Bible says, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. So again here, brethren, this sickle is used for judgment, for the weaning, if you will, the, the, the clearing away of the chaff, having on his head a sharp sickle. Verse 15, And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice unto him that sat in the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time has come for thee to reap, and the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat in the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the altar, which had the power over fire, and cried with a loud voice to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sickle, and gather in the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. Verse 19. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and cast it into the winepress of what? Of the wrath of God. So again, brethren, we see here as John's describing this mighty angel as dwelling places in heaven, he's dressed, if you will, in the drapery of heaven. This cloud, of course, is again tied to judgment. However, as God is always merciful, he never forgets his mercy. John again gives us here a second description. Again, I've already mentioned it. The rainbow. Look there, if you would, back at verse number one. He came down from heaven. He was clothed with the crowd. Listen, cloud. And a rainbow was upon his head. Now, brethren, the rainbow here, in which the mighty angel is crowned, reassures, again, this is the idea of God's grace. While the cloud is associated with his judgment, the rainbow, as we all know, is associated with his grace, with his covenant of promise and mercy. And the first time it appears, and I like to read this part, we all know these scriptures. I like to read them, brother. Amen. I like to hear God's word, whether it's over and over again, and especially when it really drills into the evil men who have taken the rainbow of God, that which symbolizes his grace, that which symbolizes his mercy, that which symbolizes his promise to never, ever, ever destroy the world again with water, they take that again. As the cloud is judgment, the rainbow, of course, is a show of God's mercy. Those two together. Let's read that. Look at Genesis chapter 9. Again, I love to read the Word of God, especially pertaining to these sorts of things. Because again, the Word of God never changes. The meaning of this never changes. And I want you to notice the word perpetual <laughs> that's used here in Genesis chapter 9. This again declares the mercy of God God never forgets his mercy, amen, upon those to whom he is going to show mercy. It is quite an amazing thing. And he's faithful here to keep his promise. Revelation chapter 9. Look at verse number 12. Revelation chapter 9, verse number 12. Again, we know the flood has just taken place. He's now uh, entering into the third covenant, the Noahic covenant. Look at verse number 12 of chapter 9. And God said, 
This is a token of the covenant which I made between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For what? Perpetual generations. In other words, until the time comes, I will never ever, I promise, you have my word, you have my promise, you have the covenant that I'm making, that I will never ever again do this. He's making a covenant and keeping his word for perpetual generations. I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the bow shall be set in the cloud, and I will look upon it that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature all flesh that is upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, This is the token of the covenant, which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. So again, as John is describing, he brings forth the judgment of God again, and he also brings forth again the mercy of God, the graciousness of God, the gloriousness of God, as he is a promise maker and a promise keeper, as he describes him there. This really is an encouraging thing, and it should be, as it reassures God's elect of his mercy to them, even in the midst of the coming judgment. Amen? And again, this is kind of the dichotomy that I've been wrestling with. Even in our day, you see that. You see the judgment of God on one hand, and yet you see these glorious victories. You see him saving souls. You see him doing all of these things amidst the judgment. This is the very thing we see. This is exactly what John is describing for us, right before our ears and right before our very eyes. The Lord Jesus does indeed, brethren, come as the faithful one, as the merciful one, even in the midst of wrath. The Lord does indeed remember mercy upon those to whom he will save. Now look back there again at Revelation chapter 10, verse 1. He goes from describing the heavenly place to his glorious apparel. Now he moves on to his glorious appearance, what he looks like. And John describes it here in a most glorious way. Again, we see these similarities between the Lord and um, between this angel. But again, this is an angel, a herald,er of God, who is bringing forth his message. And we're going to see that here as we conclude here in just a moment. Look at verse number one again. And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head. And his face, as it were, the sun and his feet as the pillars of fire. As I said, John now goes to the appearance of the angel as he describes him, amen, as the Spirit of God reminds him and draws him to that. He describes the angel's face as the sun, which reflects the glory of God. Amen. We don't have time, brethren. Scripture after scripture, this is what it's doing. It's reflecting the glory of God, number one. And number two, he describes his feet as pillars of fire, which indicate God's firm, listen, in unbending holiness, in stamping out his judgment upon the ungodly who inhabit the earth. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 63, and I want us to turn there again, this is this reversal of the wrath. It's an amazing thing as God sent forth his son. His son paid the wrath of God was upon him for his people. Now in turn, it's reversed. As he comes in judgment, that wrath again will be poured out upon those who reject him. Look at Isaiah 63. He's a great glorious what do we call him? He's the great Old Testament evangelical prophet. He preached more about Christ than any other Old Testament prophet ever did. And uh, we see this again here in Isaiah chapter 63. As God uh, draws him in, cha in chapter 63 to speak of Christ coming, Christ delivering, 
and Christ judging. It's an amazing thing. You have these two all together here as God leads Isaiah to write these glorious words. Look at verse number 3. Look what it says. I have trodden the winepress alone. Brethren, when the Lord Jesus took the wrath of God upon himself and trod into the winepress of the wrath of God, he alone had to do it. There's no one else that could do it. Nobody could take his place. I couldn't take his place. No one could. So what you see here again is the Lord Jesus saying, I took the wrath of God. I took the winepress of God alone as he poured out his wrath on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a stunning thing. And Isaiah knows this. He's writing this long before it ever happens. And yet again, we know the accuracy of prophecy and how God did that. Look what it says. I have, tried the wine, I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me. For I will tread them in my anger and trample them. So again, he took the wrath of God. He saves his elect. And then in turn, those who reject Christ, he then turns and the wrath of God comes upon them, which is what we're going to see here in the book of Revelation eventually. And I will tread them in my anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain uh, all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in my uh, heart, and the year of my redeem is come. So again, we see this glorious, if you will, what seems to be an utter contradiction, yet it is a glorious uniting of two glorious attributes of God. His wrath that was appeased in Christ those who reject it then, that wrath then is turned, and it, of course, rests upon them. And we as Bible believers understand that. That's nothing new. In fact, in Revelation chapter 14, we see it again, this wine press. This is what John is getting ready and prepared as these heralders are going to come and speak of these things to these people who are upon the earth. Look at Revelation 14. We'll just read that. Revelation 14. So Isaiah 63, all the way through. We understand this, brother. But again, it's interesting when you think about it, how those two are coinciding together and yet perfectly. In our minds, we can't understand that. But in God's holy, perfect mind, he understands that and he executes it perfectly. You and I would not, but he does and he can and he will. Look there at Revelation 14 again as we move ahead just a little bit in our timetable in the book of Revelation. Revelation 14, look at verse number 19. And again, we were here earlier in the text, but I want to continue that out. The Bible says in verse 19, And the angel thrust in his sickle of the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horse bridles, by the space of 1,600 uh, furlongs. That's about 185 miles, roughly. Amen. Look at verse 15. Don't stop. And I saw another angel, another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up with the wrath of God. And again, brethren, you have this glorious dichotomy. You have the wrath of God. You have the, the glory of God. You have the justice of God. You have the mercy of God. You have the grace of God all working together, even, brethren, really, as they do today. Only you're going to see this in a great, more glorious context, if you will, because the Lord Jesus Christ himself will be present ruling on the earth. It's an amazing, stunning thing to see. And you know what men will still do? Yeah. Hey, can you just, you know, prove Christ to me? Can you just prove it to me? All right. Well, he came once. And what did they do? What does Spurgeon say? God came, the God-man came, and they killed him. 
That's what they did. And you know what? They'd kill him again if they could get their hands on him again. I promise you that. Wicked men will do that. In his second coming, brethren, there will be none of that. He is the king of kings. He is the glorious rider. He who will return on the clouds of the... Oh, man. Think of that, brethren. Ooh, I just get excited. Our king is coming. And John is saying, you better be prepared. The world better be prepared. Because there's coming a day when he who is going to trample the winepress of the wrath of God upon the earth. Oof. I still get goosebumps. I read that before I was saved and got goosebumps. And I still think about that. How God uses the surety of his word to draw a lost soul. Amen. To these amazing truths. The angel which stood upon the earth. You know, as we look at this and see this. That which the angel stands upon here in verse 2. The earth, the nations will indeed be judged and stamped in the winepress of God. I want you to see the totality of that in verse number 2 of chapter 10. Notice where the feet are placed. And again, this is the assurity of it. This is the totality of it. Look there, if you would, in verse number 2. And he had a little uh, a book in his hand. It was open. And he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot upon the what? Upon the earth. That's the totality of Christ as the ruling king who will bring this judgment upon the earth. Now, look here quickly as we get to verse number two. This little book, this glorious little book that John describes for us here in verse number two, he says, and he had in his hand a little book open. And I said already, we notice our attention is drawn to the fact that this book is already open. Amen. You remember the first book back when the Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God, he was opening the seals, wasn't he? He was opening them one by one, and the seal was being opened. Here, this mighty angel standing there with this book that's already open. That which is being revealed. It's an amazing thing, brother. And if you delve deep into this thing, it's an amazing thing. This book does indeed contain prophecy. It contains prophecy, which the prophet is to ingest. This is the whole point of the text as John begins. Is to ingest, and then, brethren herald to those to whom God sends him to. Look at verse 7. Look what happens here in verse number 7. Look what John, or, or, or this, the Spirit of God has John write. He says, again, this is a parenthesis, so he's going to look forward, but he's got this book in his hand, and it's open, and it's got these prophecies that he's going to be preaching. Look there at verse number 7. Look what it says. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mysteries of God should be finished, as he hath declared to his servants, the prophets. And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again and said, Go, take the little book. You see that there, man? This, this book that's open, this book that he's able to see, the prophecies of God that he's going to herald and preach. Look here, if you will. He says, Take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. <clears throat> and I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he, and he said unto me, Take it. And what? Eat it. <laughs> Does this sound familiar, brother? Does this sound familiar at all? About another prophet who was to take a roll and eat it? And you know what he did? He ate the words that were on the scroll, just like John is going to do, the words that he is going to preach to those who are upon the earth. Look at there. Look what it says. And he took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up. And it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. Then he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again 
Again, this is John. This is the prophet. This is what he's going to do later on in our text as we see this. But thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. The things written on the book are the words of God. They are the prophecies of God that he is to preach, that he is going to preach, and that we're going to see preached later on in the book of Revelation. Again, does it ring a bell? Does it bring to mind any other prophet in the Bible where he was told to eat a roll? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's turn to Ezekiel for just a moment. Again, God doing what he's always done. He's done in the past. He will do it again, and he did it here with the prophet Ezekiel. And we notice the similarities here, if you will, in verse in chapter number three. Look at verse number one again. Ezekiel. Ezekiel was what? He was a prophet of God. He was to preach the words that God gave him to preach. And we see here again this very clear pattern of ingesting the word physically and then physically, if you will, preaching those words that you've ingested. It's an amazing thing. Look at verse number one. Moreover, he said unto me, Son of man, eat that which uh, eat that thou findest. Eat this roll and go speak unto the house of Israel. Here particularly, he's to take these words that God has written down. He's going to go preach it to Israel. This particular, as John preaches, he's preaching to the lost as he takes the word. And he said unto me, Son of man, cause thy belly to eat and fill thy bowels with this roll that I give thee. Then I did eat it. And it was in my mouth as what? Honey for sweetness. The word of God again. Just like John. It's the same thing. He's taking the words of God, the prophecies of God, the word of God. And he's ingesting them, if you will, literally to show that the words that this man has, when it comes out, it is the word of God. It's not John's word. It's not Ezekiel's word. It's not my word. It's not, it was no prophet's word. He simply spoke what? What God told him to speak. Here's just a glorious, if you will, typology of that literally then did I eat it and it was sweet in my mouth as honey for sweetness look at verse 4 and he said unto me son of man go get thee out of the house of Israel and speak with my words unto them again these are God's words this is literally what he's telling him for thou art not sent to a people of a strange speech and of a hard language but unto the house of Israel John and Ezekiel and these prophets spoke the words of God. This is the idea here. This is what uh, the Spirit of God is saying concerning him. Both Ezekiel and John are told to eat the book. Both books were sweet to the taste, but bitter to the stomach. And then knowing full well that there ain't, this ain't not even a word, ain't any word, but we're going to use it anyway. Knowing for a surety that there ain't going to be much repentance. The preaching of the word, there's going to be very little repentance. There are those who will but it's going to be a very small number, if you will. God's elect as he rolls along. Just like here as Ezekiel preached to the nation of Israel. Both books contained prophecy, the words of God, which the prophet was and is to ingest and then herald to those to whom they are sent. What an amazing thing, isn't it? See, these little things really intrigue my theological mind. Because it does go to the heart. It goes right down into your heart when you think of the gloriousness of God and what he's actually doing. And especially when, as we close, when I consider and I ponder and I think about the relevancy of even what we're reading. That God, during a time of judgment, brethren, would be so gracious, would be so kind to do what he's done, even in our own day, 
what appears to be a glorious work of God. As he is moving, as Brother Dean said earlier, it is a glorious first step. Amen? Send it back to the states. And then states, we, we got to do the right thing. Amen? And every state should do the right thing. But it is a glorious victory within the judgment of God. We've been killing and slaughtering our children, shedding their innocent blood for over 50 years. Think, think of how deluded they were when this happened. They just took away a fundamental constitutional right. What? Where's that at in the Constitution? I mean, you want to see how perverted and warped a, a reprobate mind really is? You just saw that. It's nowhere to be found. It doesn't exist. Although, for some reason, the reprobate mind, they think the Second Amendment doesn't mean what the Second Amendment says. You, you cannot make it up. It just it drives me insane. I mean, that, but it is a glorious view of a reprobate mind unable to reason anything good. You're going to give us. You're going to say something that isn't there is there. The killing of our unborn children, and yet what is clearly there, the right to keep and to bear arms, is not there, brother. Please, <laughs> it's just stunning. It really is. But this is the day and age which we live, and praise God, praise His holy name, brother, that He would allow us to live in such a time as this. Amen. To witness and see what God's own hand is doing. And it's blatant. It is blatant. Again, I go back to the, and I need to stop, but I go back to when God placed the man to whom he chose, just like he chose both uh, Joe Biden. Even though wicked men did what they did, it was still God's hand. And you know what's happening? You know what's happening, I think, across our land? You listen, brethren, to election results in small cities and in small towns. You know what's happening? They are being replaced. People are waking up and going, wait, wait a minute. Really? That's what you're doing? That's what you're up to? That's what you're doing in secret? God is broadcasting it for all to see and hear. It is a glorious time for us to be alive and to have God's word, amen, and to be part of his glorious church. Let's pray together. Father, we again thank you for your word. We know that you are working out all things according to your good purpose. There is not one promise that will fail. Not one word that is said by you that will fail ever. Ever. And even tonight, we see in our text. And God said, I mean, God said it. It is a word that will never change. It is a word that is kept, even reminding us tonight of the cloud and the association of Christ's coming, second coming, and judgment. And yet we see again your mercy in the rainbow, that which evil men have stolen, and yet we know biblically that it is a picture, it is a reminder to us your covenant-keeping mercy. And Father, tonight we thank you for that, and we thank you for, again, as this rolls along, as we see your ever-consistent self, he who never changes, he who changeth not. And Father, we thank you tonight 
We thank you, Father, for the remission of sins that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that when you lead us and draw us to trust in him, that our sins are indeed washed away, and that the righteousness of Christ is then imputed to us, to our account, a debt we could never pay. And that never changes. That debt was paid 100%. It was applied never to be misapplied or reapplied. It is justified. It is a one-time action that you have done to the believer. You have justified them. They will always be justified because you love them like you love your son, the Bible says. Even though we're sinners, you paid for that sin. That sin has been paid. The debt's been paid. And Satan can never, ever accuse the brethren all that he might, all that he must, until he too is cast into the lake of fire, that place that you have ordained him to end. And Father, we thank you for that security. We understand again your grace more and more. We know that we sin, we know we're sinners, and yet we know that you are a covenant-keeping God, a promise keeper, a real promise keeper, one who will never renege on his word. When you save, you save wholly, completely, totally, and forever unto the end. And Father, we love you and thank you. We see that tonight even in our text. We thank you and love you and pray all these things now in the mighty name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ and all God's people.